Hi, I'm Cole. And I'm Lily. And this is the Culture Bites Back podcast. Episode 5, The Premier Knot. So in a continuation of our conversation from the last episode, we wanted to return to a discussion about uh, design and theme. When I look at your game, Pax Premier, and I listen to you discuss it, you don't seem like you're just acting as a game designer, right, the, the mechanics and the structure. You also seem to be acting as a historian. But that then brings up this interesting tension between history as this pure experience, right, like a universal truth that's there no matter what, and history as very much sculpted by the people not just experiencing it, but the people who then curate, you know, the the consequences of it, the the leftover artifacts that then put together that history. When I was working on the game, a lot of my work was sort of indistinguishable for the same kind of work I do as like a scholar and a student. I went to the library and I'd work on my dissertation for a few hours and then I'd go work on the game for an hour or so. Uh, and I was reading a lot of the same books and doing a lot of the same kind of like note taking. And yet, my game isn't history. I mean, it's what happened historically is possible in that game. But I've played PAX, I think, about 100 times. And I have seen the historical narrative play out once, maybe twice. What I wanted to do instead was to provide people with a sense of place. So in some respects, it's more like writing historical fiction than writing history. But I also, like, I think that doesn't mean that the historical fiction should be, like, compromised by the fact that it's fiction, right? Like, I think one of the things that works about the design is I I do think it captures the period well. But I also think that because of, like, what it means to play a game, uh, which is to say that you are, like, playing in this environment, the kind of historical knowledge that's being imparted is a little different than a standard history class. It's more of, like, a thought exercise or something. I want us to pause and, and maybe discuss that phrase you just used. Um, it captures the period because that's at the root of, of a lot of games. Right. Games give us like alternative histories, a counterfactual representation that we can then participate in. But one of the debates that you see maybe in, in video games right now, um, I'm not sure if this is true of board games, is this question of realism, particularly when games are designed or based on or drawing inspiration from recognizable uh, moments in time. Even if the people playing it don't actually have any background, they recognize these moments. Um, And I'm thinking particularly of the Middle Ages, or as some people call them, the Dark Ages, but that's not. Anyway, the Middle Ages, right? And and that, that medieval fantasy, the chivalry, the knights, the war, the honor, Right, the, the clash of civilizations, that really epic narrative, um, which obviously is subjective, but that this becomes the foundation for so many games. And when these games are critiqued in the way that yours was, like, why didn't you include this, or you're factually wrong here or there, the, the default response seems to be, it's realism. That's why we didn't include females or they only occupied this role, we didn't include these different races and, and all of that. So 
where do you see yourself fitting into that conversation about realism in games, especially since you yourself just said to you this is more like historical fiction, not history? Okay, so a few a few things you put a lot on the table <laughs> that, that I'm really I, I want to get to, and I think they're, they're important points. So when people would send me emails and say they want something in the game, um, usually my answer was no because of scope and scale, mm-hmm. right? So like in in the game uh, there are armies, like pieces that represent armies, um, and so I had one person who said you should have the difference between uh, horses guys on horses and cannons. And I said, <laughs> look, that's like that's true. But every action a player takes represents one year. And the board has a certain scale. And those pieces on the board, which represent about an attacking force of about 5,000 to 6,000 people, like that scale doesn't really let me represent the differences between horses and cannons and foot soldiers. So there's an issue of scale and scope. But that's a little bit of a cheat, too, because I'd recognize that the fact that I'm not really talking about religion is an argument that I'm making about how we oftentimes misrepresent geopolitics as sectarian politics, as a sectarian like struggle, because it's easy, because it like fits into like our weird like modern day Orientalism. So I didn't want to put it in there. In the expansion I did, which will come out next year, I did include some religious movements, but they behave according to my own understanding of religious movements in that time. They aren't the undergirding force, they are kind of a momentum slower where players have to contend with the fact that a lot of their followers might go join a religious movement. Sure, but even as you're answering my question, you're still presenting it as this is like the reason I'm doing this, right? This is the perspective I'm presenting or this is my intent. But when we see the same, these same concerns enacted in the video game industry, instead of addressing like head on, here's what we were trying to do, this is why we left these things out, the easy response is it's realism. These things don't belong there because it's realism. And, like, we don't even have to address the fact that when you say it's realism, like, dragons obviously aren't realism, right? Like, even putting that whole, like, logical concern aside, the use of history as a barrier of some sort or a defense against maybe lazy writing or lazy design. Yeah, I mean, I so I... I can sympathize with the it's history defense mm-hmm. so long as history is being represented well, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so actually, so I'll, I'll give you an example of, of where that came out in, in our design. So players, um, the individual players represent, they control political factions, but individually you just represent um, behind-the-scenes actors. Mm-hmm. And in the, re- in the game, I have kind of anonymous figures. These are just from random paintings that I found from the period of just people who don't get named, who don't have names, who knows who these folks are. But one of them is a woman. And the publisher said, you know, Islam and women, women in Afghanistan have very few rights. Like this seems like a misrepresentation of the history. And I had to tell him that, I mean, I really pushed against that and said, like, look, there are examples of women who wielded political power, especially at the level of like the behind the scenes organizers. And so his desire to be historically correct uh, and I don't think he realized that this was an argument that we we hashed out and, and Phil ended up being like quite uh, – he was quite amenable to my position. Um, but his argument was he was allowing his – like his, a political position uh, about women's rights in the 21st century mm-hmm. and allowing that to eclipse 
his knowledge of the history. In the same way that a game set in the medieval period might have a really uh, backwards gender politics, even by the standards of the medieval period, mm-hmm. right? So like, to me, the, the defense that you want to be historically accurate is a totally reasonable impulse. And mm-hmm. It's a good one. Uh, but you also should be careful to interrogate your own sense of the history. Right. Like, does your history come from your research and reading into the history or because this is what everyone says that history was like now? Right. And, I mean, look, look at Assassin's Creed, right? So <laughs> when, I, when I called my game historical fiction, I did not mean historical fiction a la Assassin's Creed, where I feel like the period becomes just sort of like a warehouse of tropes that they can kind of stitch together. Like, like the new Victorian game is like a little steampunky. Yeah. Like you're a little sick in Darwin. And it kind of doesn't make any sense. I mean, it makes sense within their thematic universe. I mean, I think like in a way calling your own work historical fiction is more responsible because you're already acknowledging the impact that your personal perspective and background has on the history that, you know, exists behind us. But with so many other games that don't do that, Instead, they just say it's history. And, and maybe they add in a few facts or a few actual events that happen. And that kind of bleeds into the player assumption that the rest of it must also be pretty accurate so long as it's historical looking or historical seeming. Right. I mean, I think that it's a, the conversation in games about realism and accuracy uh, is, I think, profoundly unsophisticated. When you think about <laughs> like, what, like what it means to be realist, I mean, that is not an easy term to sort through. Uh, and in video games, what it means to be realist is often like, are the skins HD? Like, does the clothing look realistic? Uh, how are the weather effects? I mean, like, you know, do your characters get tired? Mm-hmm. Like, those are the, the concerns of realism in video games. And, like, the, the, those are trite concerns. They're, they're so small compared to the bigger problems of, like, what it, what it means when you claim something is, like, realist. Mm-hmm. I just I, I want to go on a long a long tangent here about Grand Theft Auto and realism, but for the viewer at home, Lily's gesturing. She's urging me on to talk about <laughs> Grand Theft Auto because I actually think Grand Theft Auto d- makes no claims to realism, like none. Like I think it is an unbelievably cartoonish game, mm-hmm. and I think much of the critical like disjuncture is critics reading Grand Theft Auto and saying. This game is depraved and, um, like, you know, they're treating it like a work of, of, of realism where we actually play the game. Uh, it's clearly parodic. Uh, and if you understand it in this cartoonish and parodic lens, like, the, the game makes more sense. Um, whereas, like, the realism of a game like Call of Duty is quite more upsetting. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Call of Duty, ima- I mean, imagine Call of Duty if designed by Rockstar, right? A game that would be a lot, like, sillier and would maybe interrogate, like, the weird cult of masculinity and, like, gun fetish that underscores Call of Duty. But instead, we just have Call of Duty, which is an unironic, like, endorsement of, like, all things killing and death in the modern era. And includes, especially with respect to accuracy, a bunch of generic as hell medieval, I mean not medieval, uh, oriental settings 
that players can go to and like enact like their fantasy of becoming part of the army of one. Grand Theft Auto does nothing like that uh, and seems much more knowing in its recognition of the space of a game. Yeah, I I find this use of the word realism troubling not just because, I mean, we have a different understanding of realism as critics and, and historians and like literary historians, but also because like it seems so arbitrary to me. Where where do we draw the line like this is realism, but this other stuff is not? The dragons in this game or the witchcraft, the the zombies in this game aren't real. But then everything else is real and therefore immune to criticism about representation. What do you think of Game of Thrones? Because that that's like if if I'm not thinking of video games, that's also the current popular, you know, mainstream television show that, you know, people kind of cite in terms of accurate violence, inaccurate violence, accurate depictions of, of women, sexual violence, all of that, like, versus realism. I mean, that's, Game of Thrones is tricky. Um, okay, so I have to, I'm going to do the thing that I don't often do, but I'm going to clarify exactly how much of Game of Thrones I know. <laughs> I have read the books, I think all of the newest one. I've seen the first season. Okay, then we're in the same place because I've read the books, but I watched maybe half of the first season. And mostly I just read the critical responses, people's comments to kind of gauge where the show's at. Okay, so first of all, the realism thing with Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is undoubtedly making a claim to be realistic, right? The gore, the like, just the way it's filmed, um, the way it's written, even I think like it's a world where nobody believes in, fa- in, in, in you know in the classic tropes of mm-hmm. fantasy. Like obviously, Martin is playing with realism. And in fact, when I first read that book in high school, the person who recommended it to me said it's brilliant because it's not like a fantasy novel. It's like it's more it's like, like politics. It's like yeah. politics is more like historic fiction, right? No, I was totally surprised when I read it. It was a lot better than I expected it to be, considering you know it's in the fantasy genre and there's so much of fantasy that's Chopish. Okay, so all that's <clears throat> on the table. And for the most part, the book and TV show totally deliver. The controversy swirls around the sheer amount and brutality of like the rape scenes mm-hmm. and a lot of the other violence. So proponents of the show will say, oh, it's realistic. Lots of people got raped in the Middle Ages. <laughs> okay. They're not wrong, right? Um, but on the other hand, this is a work of fiction that was created in response to the world that we, like, live in today. Mm-hmm. Like, Game of Thrones is a product of, like, the early 2000s, late 90s. Or, yeah, I think in the late 90s is when they came out. And so we want to ask ourselves, especially with respect to HBO, which has deviated from the books a little bit, yeah. um, what is it about our desire to turn the show, to make the show even more about rape and even more about violence? Like, that, why is that the aspect of realism like we choose right. to represent? because here's the thing, right? Like, you could be hyper-realistic and make sure that you show everybody when they're going to the bathroom. Yeah. Right? Like, make sure they have realistic bowel movement. Or you could show latrines, movement. you know, right. instead of I want, I want realistic bowel movement smells. I want an investment in the odors oh of, right? Uh, yeah, bowel movement schedules and the odors of the Middle Ages. There are lots of ways that they could have made it realistic. Mm-hmm. But instead, they're emphasizing sexual violence, which is something that totally happened, right? Obviously, it's still happening. But why are you highlighting it? It seems to me that realism, when we talk about realism, we're really just talking about attention. And attention on things that are gritty, that gets labeled as realistic, Mm -hmm. right? The politics of realism 
in our own time uh, seem to me about convincing people that the world is a very dark, scary, and violent place, and we just have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So the politics of realism are the politics of resignation. And that's the narrative we choose to tell, right, by focusing on those aspects of realism rather than all of the, like, as you said, right, bowel movements. Well, and it, it feeds into another term that I, I dislike only for its uh, broadness. It feeds into something that we might call like a rape culture, Because if you can convince somebody that, like, rape is brutal and scary, but also has always been there and there's really nothing we can do about it, then it excuses the the violence of our own time, right? Sure, just the same way that evolutionary psychology is frequently used to justify sexual behaviors, relationships, because that's how we're built. Well, and this is like my same problem with survivalist fantasy. There is a world of post-apocalyptic fiction that could be written that would be quite interesting. But most of the stuff that I do read is nonsense. It's like this Randian like fantasy where people are constantly backstabbing each other and the, you know it's a huge mess where there is a politics that's motivating that create the, the creation of uh, that fiction and it's important to own up to that politics, right? Yeah. Um, and that isn't to say that, you know, they aren't a little Hobbesian. But not all Hobbesian societies need to look like the little town in The Walking Dead. Like what you say here kind of implies that it's not just that we're taking history and turning it into a narrative. We all currently exist in these established narratives that we don't recognize, which then distorts or influences how we perceive our past narratives. But because we don't recognize that that's what's happening, it just perpetuates itself. Right. And I think... And here, like, this is the place where the tropes get really dangerous. Mm-hmm. This is, like, to, to make the, that Sarkeesian pivot. Well, sure, yeah. There are plenty of Renaissance middle-aged scholars, you know, who would dispute a lot of the claims to realism that people like to cite for Game of Thrones. Well, and, and in the way that zombie fiction and, like, survivalist horror uh, seems to be something of an echo chamber where the same philosophical tropes – begin to take on the gravity of something that we might call reality. Mm-hmm. And what you need is a work like Mad Max, Fury Road, which <laughs> totally, amazing. which is amazing, in part, I think, because it totally reworks the, the like, dystopian world. And to me, like, when, when I look, if I were to, I would say that Mad Max, Fury Road is more realistic than The Walking Dead. I mean, I wouldn't dispute it because it's all a future dystopia. Who knows what's more realistic? But I also I find that the politics of Mad Max Fury Road um, and indeed like the insanity of that creation are more grounded in a broader understanding of like the human condition. Whereas when I watch when I watch like a random episode of The Walking Dead or read a comic. It like rehashes medieval, our perspective of medieval politics. Right, or not even medieval politics, but this weird, like, survivalist fantasy. Like, I've seen this before. I feel like you just, in a circulatory way, stated something that I find really valuable, which is the idea that Mad Max has been treated as a political statement, right, with uh, Charlize Theron's role, you know, maybe overshadowing or being equal to to Max's, and people finding that, like, a feminist statement or, or some kind of... Um, progressive ideology. But then people don't consider that uh, Walking Dead, uh, Game of Thrones, Path of Exile, the video game that I was thinking about in terms of realism, that all of these are also politics being enacted in in pop culture, right? That just because they 
they're like the standard that we've become used to in the past decade doesn't mean it's not also a political statement of its own. And I think this is a reason why when I was working on Pamir, when I was kind of searching for the setting and the mechanics of the game starting to click together, I wanted to gravitate towards a setting where there would be less assumptions or the, the, the assumptions would be so baldly idiotic, right? <laughs> so, I, I mean, one of the interesting things I've played, uh, I've taught this game to many people and very quickly uh, it undermines their stereotypes of the region. I have had more like random racist things said about Whoa. the young Afghan. Well, and you know, the, the young Afghan state, where they'll just say things that have no basis in reality. Mm-hmm. And it's through the play, like having to work through the, the subject position, which they had dismissed with, you know, some random, um, I'm not even about to re-say it, but like some random um, pejorative. They quickly realize that like their assumptions are completely unfounded. And then from there, they start building like a new and maybe deeper understanding of that, of that region. So, it, I mean, so it reminds me, actually, I was really inspired by, there's a designer named Joel Toppin who has a brilliant, brilliant game called Navajo Wars. Uh, which is a game about the Navajo, but you play the Navajo. And it's a solitaire game. Like, it's designed to be played either by a team of players playing the Navajo or just one player playing them. Um, Because he didn't want to recycle the narratives of, like, the West coming in there and knocking the doors down and instead wanted players to understand the social and political and cultural pressures that were on the Navajo. So you have to, like, you ask players to inhabit that position, you are sensitive uh, in the creation of a decision space around that position. What that does is it allows the games to provide players with access to subject positions that they don't normally have. And that to me seems like to be the one thing that games can really do well. I completely agree because what you're saying about Pax Pamir and what we're touching on with, with other video games, right now there's an instinctive rejection of undermining or subverting uh, things we're comfortable with, whether that's you know, incredible violence in the Middle Ages towards women or an impact from as you said, women having powers behind the scene as well. Like these things that aren't part of our current perspective, but that might actually be more truthful or more accurate. And people will reject that on instinct because that's not what they're used to seeing. So they assume what they're used to seeing is the truth and what maybe you're presenting is this whole liberal like fantasy. And, okay, and so here I think I want to talk about the word politically correct. Yeah. When I first started working on the game, people were, they, they looked at the theme, they saw that I was asking the players to play, it was, it's a history of, of the empire, the British empire, but from the bottom up, not from the top down. And I think people saw that and they said, oh, is this a politically correct version of Afghanistan? Are you just trying to like make the British Empire look bad. But anybody who plays Premier knows that like I'm not interested in creating a tale of history that glosses over the terrible things that the political parties in Afghanistan were doing to each other at the time, mm-hmm. right? I, I think that there is a worry sometimes because once you recognize that pro- like games and art, films, all the rest, once you recognize that everything's political, there's a worry that the politics – is going to distort the, the truths of the game. So what you want to do then is uh, be really transparent about the politics of what you're doing and then also talk about the things that are informing that political intervention. Yeah, and I think through both parts of this podcast, you've been very, very transparent about 
your goals, what kind of history you're looking at, like why you presented that history a certain way. It's just that there's a lack of that self-awareness or transparency, both from consumers and, and producers, that, that they don't realize there's already that intention influencing the narratives that are being delivered in games or films or products that we consider more realistic. Yeah, I mean, I, it's... I knew that I, I felt like I had done well on this project when in the same day I got an email accusing me of being a, a modern-day imperialist and being politically correct. Same day, within an hour, mm-hmm. I, I, I got both sides hitting at me. And it's because if you overhear the game, if you listen to players while they're playing it, they are conspiring and assassinating and torturing each other. I mean, it's really pretty graphic. And then on the other hand, the Brits come off looking like idiots, which they were. The Russians don't look much better in the game. They're clearly being manipulated by the local forces. I mean, this is a really a place where um, global policy is just running into the realities on the ground and players are on the ground pushing back against it. And it's, it, I think it's an interrogation of, of British foreign policy too. Whether or not it's politically correct, like uh, the, reason I, the reason I don't like that term is just because I find that it's kind of an empty signifier, right? It means different things to different people. And generally when people use it as a pejorative, they mean it's a nicer version. It's not as gritty, right? right. That's what's politically correct. Yeah, and so if by politically correct you simply mean sensitive to the history. <laughs> or sometimes when I hear people try to recapture the term politically correct, they like to replace it with like treat with respect you know, this is like a cl- when it comes to um, issues of identity politics. Like if you're calling someone by the, the, the pronoun that they say that they are, you're treating them with respect. Other people might say you're yeah. being politically correct. That's not actually what I mean when I say it. Like I'm just trying to be sensitive to the theme. And that means sometimes, um, you know, calling a spade a spade. And other times uh, it means aggressively undermining assumptions about Western imperialism. Right, so it it pushes me in different directions, but I think games like novels, maybe. I mean, I don't know. This is like I'm going to go grad school here for a moment. Like <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about Bakhtinian, like heteroglossia, right? Like the many voices of the of the right, work. Right. I think games, even. I mean, I did all the art. I I didn't do the development of the game. I was helped by by my publisher, Phil, but. A lot of a lot of Pax Premier is my work, and yet it speaks with a bunch of different voices, and and on different valences. I think you make it work, melding Russian formalism, heteroglossia, like the, this kind of structure, with these cultural concerns. Because yes, you're approaching it from this um, mechanical perspective, but your intent is to undermine cultural assumptions that we have. So it's not that these approaches are incompatible, but that, that they work together. Right? You can't look at culture without looking at the structures and intending to dismantle what you find to be inaccurate representations of those structures. Yeah, I know. I think that I, th- uh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to be fair. Um, and I also like, and I understand even if, even if my understanding of a politically correct historiography is a little different from the classic understanding. I recognize that desire not to misrepresent or to like appropriate. Mm-hmm. Like that, that, that's a real and present danger. Actually, I was, I was initially somewhat worried because my, my publisher, Phil, who's you know, the nicest man in the world, um, even though we have lots of disagreements, 
he uh, he shows the game at Essen, the big game festival where the, the game is released, and he usually dresses up like a character from the game while he's giving these demos. And in the back of my mind, I was terrified <laughs> that he was going to like don a turban and like dress up as like an Afghani chief. Um, and I, so I was thinking about that, and I almost wrote an email saying like, "Please, Phil, like I don't <laughs> want to be like on the top of Reddit. <laughs> um, I don't have this ruin my academic career." Um, but I, I started thinking about that concern a little bit more because in a way, I mean, this is a game where the players play Afghan chiefs. Like game, the, the game itself is like totally about masquerade. And th- the problem with like the Indian costume to like think about like the classic Halloween problem, right, is not person is dressing up as an Indian. It's the recitation of a really uninformed trope that then perpetuates it. Mm-hmm. And I would I would want to think that like if players wanted to dress up and like really get in the act, that they could do it because the game was robust enough to provide – yeah, I don't know. Actually, I, I don't know if I, if I would be okay with it because there are a couple different – like this is the problem of cultural appropriation, right? There are a couple different valence, valences here, right? On one hand, I want them to understand the pressures facing people on the ground level of imperialism. I want them to recognize a shared humanity with those people that doesn't put them on a high horse. And indeed, when you look at the British policy, it's like a shared civility and barbarity with, mm-hmm. with, with those people. On the other hand, like there is a tradition of – like Masquerade has a bad tradition along with it. Uh, and so because the players interface with the game through cards and not through like LARPing and costume, I get a pass. Right. I mean, because when you play a character in a certain game, you don't transform into that character in real life. You've got a controller separating you. We get a pass when it comes to masquerade with questions of appropriation. Playing an African-American character in a game is not blackface. Mm -hmm. But that speaks mostly to the limits of the interface between the player and game Mm -hmm. and not to what's actually happening. But that's also why people get so concerned with representation in games because they understand that there is an aspect of masquerade, right? And if we're masquerading as this character or associating, inhabiting this character, the character also matters, how we perceive that character, who or what that character is supposed to remind us of. Yeah, no, I, th- I mean, that's a, that's a good point. I just, there, there's another issue here that actually has to do less with an individual subjectivity and more with, like, the question of evil in games, like who's represented as evil? No, just like what like what it means to ask a player to be evil in the space of a game. Mm, like fantasy. Sure. Or I'm not even talking about fantasy. The game I'm working on right now um, is about the Opium Wars. And the players play um, uh, British trade firms doing unspeakably evil things like bribing bureaucrats, mm-hmm. helping missionaries, moving opium into the interior of the country. Like you – in order to play that game well, you need to be a bastard. Now, I'm not – endorsing that at all. But I think that if you want to tell the story of the Opium Wars... You have to have that perspective. You have to have that, that, that perspective. And actually, originally, I had designed the game so that it was going to be asymmetric. Like a player would play a, a British firm. Another player would play um, Chinese smugglers. Another player would play like the Chinese bureaucrats. Someone might play the Chinese army. Um, and But I decided that I wanted all the players to share the same moral plane so that instead of demonizing 
just one player, mm-hmm. they could all like demonize each other kind of evenly. Part yeah. of the game is a corrective on the huge number of board games where players just play merchants, and mm-hmm. there's like you're, you might it often merchants in a colonial setting, and yet no attempt is made to understand the implica- the implications of globalization. Again, not to necessarily like adjudicate whether or not it was on par, like a good thing or a bad thing, but even just to understand how the systems were interrelated. So that was like problem one. Um, so, so what I wanted to do was say, all right, let's take that merchant figure and really look at the way they were throwing these systems out of balance. And then the other thing through the victory conditions is to provide the, 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 the players with a whole array of interesting political positions mm-hmm. where in some spots they are wanting to like lobby parliament to start an opium war mm-hmm. so they can open up more ports and other people who might have a large like ground game but not a lot of control over the opium trade are going to want to exacerbate like something like the Taiping rebellion in hopes that it like plunges China into anarchy and those various positions are helping players understand what shaped China's history in like the 18 18- 30s and 40s. I believe we've reached a spot where the scope of our conversation has become something so complicated, this podcast can no longer contain it, <laughs> right? Because we, we're now discussing the complex interactions of sympathy. When you introduce these additional perspectives, are you asking us to then sympathize with the merchants and the missionaries who, who shipped opium into China, thus destroying a whole like series of decades for that, that country? Or are you giving a broader context, um, more details that have been you know, ignored traditionally? I feel like good game design, good historical game design, like good history writing, should help players understand the forces that produce the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. And sometimes to understand those forces, you have to put players in the subject position of the people acting on those forces or, being, or maybe the position of people being acted upon, Right. So when I look – there, there are long, complicated arguments about why the Opium Wars game like look, looks in a shape the way it is. But after reading a lot of the history and being sensitive to um, some of the problems of Chinese internal politics at the time, I decided that it made the most sense to tell that story from the perspective of British merchants who – we were interacting with an unstable China, which they did not understand was unstable, as unstable as it was. Mm-hmm. And, and, and which is to say to ask the players to take an immoral position. They are trafficking opium and destabilizing China. But the way the game is created, I think it allows them to better understand how that situation like emerged. That game isn't a sandbox. Um, when you offer players sandboxes to play, it's so unfocused that it's difficult to come away with any sense. Like, I, you know, I, I played Skyrim a bunch. I don't really understand the forces that are, like, creating and shaping, like, the world of Skyrim because I'm mostly, like, building up my little levels in the various guilds and, like, fooling around and finding stuff and, like, mm-hmm. punching ogres. <laughs> but when, when you – and the reason I like board games is because they have a degree of focus to them. When you orient all the players around a single victory condition and build a game around, like, um, creating, like, this web of – of affect, suddenly you can help players understand the tides of history. And that to me seems like a a thing that games can do quite well, even if it makes players uncomfortable sometimes. 
now I'm starting to think that the problem isn't with sympathy or who we choose to represent in games so much as the problem is that sympathy itself has become like a token. If we are able to sympathize with a character, that must mean that we forgive them or are lenient or support them in some way or some kind of more positive emotional connection than what it actually is, which is just the ability to feel or understand why someone feels the way they do. And the conflict around representation and realism and, and all sorts of these cultural concerns with games and films, it all comes back to the idea of who deserves to be the more sympathetic figure. Right. And it, one of the reasons why Pax Premier is shaped the way it is is because there are lots of games about empires. Like Sid Meier's Civilization is a game about empire. Tons of games about empire. We have had all the time in the world to be sympathetic mm-hmm. with the rulers of empires. Mm-hmm. And so when I was like when I was thinking about possible settings for this game, I wanted to pick one that allowed players to sympathize and understand a situation that was pretty remote from their own experience. And I think the work of designers should be to kind of hunt for those moments, to like look at the kinds of sympathies that are being peddled and ask ourselves, like, what are the positions that we aren't hearing from to expand like the representational uh, scope of games? Mm-hmm.